Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of East Got Game, an unofficial podcast about the NBL One East competition for 2023. My name's Jacinta from the Central Coast Crusaders, and with me is none other than Lockie France from the Sutherland Sharks. Hello, Lockie. G'day, Squin. Certainly been a very entertaining week of NBL One East, to say the least. Yeah, you certainly would have had your work cut out there in the Shark Tank uh, with the huge games between Sutherland Sharks and North Spares. Yeah, two absolute nail biters, but much more fun to call in a blowout. So no complaints here. The fun part is we get to watch and call the game and not have to make any of the decisions when it comes to who's (laughs) going to win. Um, So we have just wrapped up round 13 of 18 in the NBL One East competition uh, and we've been saying it for quite a few rounds now, Lockie, that things continue to be quite tight on the ladder. Uh, Some of the results continue to be exciting, unpredictable and keeping this narrative of the the 2023 season very entertaining. Uh, You were in charge of covering the Women's Conference so let's start by going through the results. Okay, so uh, nine games this week in the women's competition, and I think the same in the men's. Uh, we kicked it off at 4 p.m. on Saturday afternoon with Alex Delaney going close to a triple-double in an 85-71 win for Manly over Centre of Excellence. Uh, Bianca Dufelmeyer came off the bench for Canberra and scored 26 points in a 98-53 win over Illawarra. Great to see her back and firing. Uh, Newcastle, led by 31 from Kate Kingham, got a big 123-47 win over Hornsby Karingai. Sutherland stormed back in the third quarter to get a 93-86 win over North after trailing early. Hills were valiant against Bankstown, but fell to a 64-80 defeat to, uh, to Bankstown. Talia Tupaya returned for Penrith in an 87-68 win over Inner West, but it may be one of her last games as she's uh, in the New Zealand squad and also re-signed over in the uh, New Zealand women's competition as well. Maitland got a 76-75 overtime win in uh, controversial circumstances against the Sydney Comets side missing Vanessa Panousis. Aubrey Wodonga just edged home in a fourth quarter comeback, 83-79 over the Central Coast Crusaders. And then on Sunday, it was North handing COE their second defeat of the weekend in a vital 92-87 win. So some very interesting results, and I think it's only made the table even tighter. We've got Manly leading the way on 14-2. Newcastle just behind them at 13-2. They just keep doing it, Newcastle. Norse at 12 and 3, Comets 11 and 3, Sutherland 11 and 5, and now Centre of Excellence have dropped to 6th at 13 and 6. Maitland, that win over Comets uh, helped solidify their position in a very tight race for the last two finals positions. They're 9 and 6. Aubrey Wodonga, 8 and 7, Canberra, 8 and 8, Bankstown, 7 and 8, and Central Coast, 5 and 11, so close to. Maybe even working their way into conversation for that final spot, but dropping that game to Albury. Then Penrith four and eleven, Inner West and Illawarra both three and twelve, Hills two and thirteen, and Hornsby Karingai one and fifteen. So you're dead right, Squint. It is still as tight as ever, especially for those last two final spots in the women's comp. But like we said in the last episode, too, Lockie, as fans, it still makes it very exciting. 
Oh, it's so good. I mean, it's so much, so much fun to see. I mean, Maitland getting that win over Comets. Yes, they did it against a team without Vanessa Panusas, but you can only beat who's put in front of you. And yeah, I think center of excellence, I think they'll be uh, more concentrating on the upcoming under-19s World Cup, but uh, just a couple of games to go for them. We'll see if they can uh, right the ship before they uh, head off to represent their country. Lots of big things ahead. Um, But uh, so I was tasked with the men's competition for round 13 and the results were as follows. So Aubrey Wodonga Bandits beat the Central Coast Crusaders at home 96 to 92 in what was an absolute thriller. Manly Warringah Sea Eagles hosted the Centre of Excellence and they lost 70 to 100. Canberra Gunners had a task ahead of them playing Illawarra Hawks, both teams, you know, in sniff of finals contention. The Canberra Gunners winning that one 91 to 78 and uh, the Canberra Gunners now cementing their spot on the ladder at fifth. And then this was a tight one that, Lucky, you were very lucky to witness firsthand. It was Sutherland Sharks men and North Bears in another heart stopper for round 13 with the Sutherland Sharks losing 76 to 78. And I believe the North Bears were down in the, lost the third quarter uh, 23 to 8 but managed to claw their way back to win by two. So that would have been a real impressive game to watch in the flesh. Then we had the Newcastle Falcons. They hosted the Hornsby Karingai Spiders and they won 62 to 45, which looked like on social media a very appropriate send-off for Jacob Doricott, who probably did play his last home game before he heads to South Australia. Some really cool footage of, of, uh, of that captured on the Newcastle Falcons social media pages, so go and have a look if you're interested. Then we went to Castle Hill and the Hornets Nest. Uh, Hills Hornets 86 beating the Bankstown Bruins 79. Penrith Panthers were at home against the Inner West Bulls and they lost on their home court 86 to 108. Sydney Comets hosted the Maitland Mustangs. Comets losing that one 67 to 85. And finally, the Central Coast Crusaders. What, what was billed as a home game for the Central Coast Crusaders against the COE because it was a makeup game? They ended up playing in Canberra, you know, on the way home after their Albury road trip. Uh, the Crusaders losing 89 to 104. So this listed as a home game, Lockie. If our Central Coast uh, Crusaders social media team didn't post that it was actually going to be played in Canberra on the way home from Albury, I would have turned up on Sunday ready to commentate and been none the wiser. So uh, thank you to the social media team of Central Coast Crusaders because otherwise I would have looked a little bit silly turning up to commentate a game that wasn't on. Fair fair play to the crew to, I mean, they could have turned around and said, no, it's our home game. We're playing it at Terrigal. Yeah, fair play to them for, you know, agreeing to make sure the game got played by playing it in, in Canberra. You know, I have a sneaking suspicion as well that the boys wouldn't have minded a double road trip if it meant they could spend more time on the bus mucking around with each other. So perhaps the away game did them a little bit of a favour. Uh, a little detour, a couple of extra hours with the boys. Never does anyone any harm. I'd be interested to know how many boys uh, called in sick to work on Monday so they could go to Mooseheads uh, on the Sunday night. <laughs> so the latter after round 13 for the men's competition, COE still sitting pretty in first position with 19-1. and one. Inner West Bulls still at second place with 13 and 2. Uh, Norse Bears, after that win against Southern Sharks, are still at third place uh, with 12 and 3. And the Sharks not too far behind them with 11 and 5. Coming in at fifth, as I mentioned before, is the Canberra Gunners at 
um, with 10 and 6. Maitland Mustangs, uh, they after their win, they're sitting 6 now with 9 and 6 record. Newcastle Falcons also have a 9 and 6 record but sitting at 7th based on for and against uh, percentage. Maitland Mustangs at 6, their percentage is 108. Newcastle sitting at 7 is 107.6. And between Gunners and Maitland is 0.2. That real middle tier, 5th to 8th, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, especially for the men's comp, is super tight. Uh, And then rounding off the top eight is Hills Hornets, and they're sitting also at 9 and 6, and their percentage is 104.3. So a couple of points away from Newcastle. But then at ninth is Aubrey Wodonga. They're sitting at eight and eight. Tenth is Illawarra with seven and eight. City Comets sit at 11th with a win loss of six and nine. Crusaders sitting at 12th with a win loss of three and 12. Bankstown Bruins also three and 12 at 13th place. And they're uh, 1.7 behind um, Crusaders in the percentage. 14th place is Penrith Panthers with three and 12. Manly Warringah at 15th with 3 and 13. And finally, we have Hornsby Karingai in 16th place with 0 and 16. Three teams, 9 and 6. That is correct. And yet, absolute fraction separating the Gunners, the Mustangs, and the Falcons. To be fair, the Gunners have one game ahead of Maitland and Newcastle. But then in 6th, 7th, 8th, we have Mustangs, Falcons, Hornets all on the same record. Um, And that's like at the the bottom end of the top eight. Uh, so we've still got Aubrey Wodonga. You know, they're still improving with every game, nipping at the the heels of the Hills Hornets um, or the stings, I should say, of the, of the Hills Hornets. <laughs> uh, so it is very likely by the time round 18 wraps up that those positions from fifth to eighth or sixth to ninth is going to change dramatically. 100%. And I mean, I don't want to, you know, say it as a Sutherland, you know, fan slash commentator, but they're they're only one game ahead of Canberra, so they can't afford to slip up and, you know, lose that home final in the first round. Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point because we have talked about the the elimination or the, the final series uh, a lot on this show based on the information that was provided to us at the time and that was always through other channels other than BNSW and MBO one but we have finally been provided the final structure and this was also sent to all of the teams. So I'm just going to quickly confirm what the finals are going to look like. So it's still going to be a top, top eight is going to go through to the final series. And then the weekend of the 29th and 30th of July, we'll have a quarterfinals series, but it's going to be elimination. So it's going to be one versus eight, two versus seven, three versus six and four versus five. And the winner goes through, and if you're out, you're out. That's the end of the season. Start planning your Mad Monday. Start collecting your fines. You're done. <laughs> the next weekend on the 5th and 6th of August will be semifinals. So the highest-ranked winners from each week before each week before will host the semifinal. So the, i.e. the winner of 1 and 8 will play the winner of 4 and 5, and the winner of 2 versus 7 We'll play the winner of three versus six. And so the plus side of this, though, is that clubs will get finals games at home, which is something we haven't seen in a long time, even in Waratah League, because we've always had the finals weekend. And that's a great opportunity for clubs to make some extra revenue. I know that talking to 
uh, a loyal listener to the podcast who's also an assistant coach of an NBL1 team. Uh, he told me that when they used to have finals games at home, they could make a lot of revenue. They could pretty much get out of the red, I should say. So mm-hmm. clubs would be able to get out of the red of their budget just by hosting one finals game. So I think it's a really good opportunity uh, having these finals. Then the grand finals will be hosted at by BNSW at a central vin- venue, which will be announced in the next couple of weeks. That will just be semifinal winner one versus semifinal winner two. So that is going to be the official MBL One East final structure. Very different to what we're used to. Lockie, what do you? What's your take on this final structure? I love it from a suspense standpoint. I would much prefer the same final series the NRL and AFL use, where one plays four, two plays three, five plays eight, six plays seven, and the losers of the top four games play the winner of the bottom four games in the second week. So the top four get a second chance. Uh, But I do love the home finals. It's ironic that in previous seasons, the only way to get a home final was to finish outside the top two because then you'd host the qualifying final to get to finals weekend, whilst the teams that finished top two wouldn't actually get the revenue boost of a home final. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I do like the atmosphere of a finals weekend because it's all of the leagues. It's youth league. It's the wheelchair league. It's what was once known as state league. It's it's a great atmosphere having a finals weekend. And for us as commentators, it was a really good opportunity to um, commentate finals games, which is great for our skills and, uh, you know, front row center for the best games of the season. So anyway, tell me about the games that you got to watch this week, uh, for round 13, Lockie. I couldn't go past watching Sutherland v North. I was kind of compelled to, but anyone who knows me knows I have been... Before I was a Sutherland fan, I was uh, a Norse fan. This is definitely one of my favourite games of the season. Sutherland got the win, 93-86. Uh, they really uh, put it together after halftime with a 30-11 third quarter because their first half, they kind of looked a little bit like a team that had won two blowouts and then had a break. Looked like they were a little a little slow to get into things. Norse took full advantage. You can't be slow getting into things against Norse because their defense will suffocate you. Sterling and the Peace Sutherland, they kind of occasionally look like they were overplaying their hand or just trying to do do a little bit too much. There was one play where Callie Hovada tried to put it on the floor after a rebound um, with three defenders around her. Um, Eliza Fabro went left, right, tried to kick it back basically to the corner when she could have just kicked it before uh, committing the defender and still giving the shooter plenty of room. And they didn't turn the ball over that much, um, but they also, especially early, they only had nine turnovers for the game, but... Uh, especially early in the piece, uh, they didn't get a lot done with the ball and that contributed to them trailing 45-35 at half time. And I will say, I still don't think late in the game against Comets, especially after Fabro fouled out, the, um, the Sharks struggled against the trap. And I still don't think they like it very much, but having Nicholson and Fabro on court, they were at least able to work their way out of it when facing defensive pressure up court from the Norse Bears. Lauren Nicholson finished with 35, 35 points, nine rebounds, seven assists, four steals and a block. Uh, But she only finished nine of 23 from the field. And I think if I remember correctly, that percentage actually ballooned a little bit late in the piece, but she did shoot 17 of 23 at the free throw line, which tells two stories in that 
yes, she got to the line a lot, but 17 to 23, for most players, that'd be a pretty decent day out. But uh, I think Lauren Nicholson will uh, probably be in there shooting 100, 100 free throws as penance because she came in as a 90% free throw shooter. But it also really spoke to which players were attacking the basket because Nicholson finished with 17 to 23 at the line, shooting all bar 13 of the Sharks' 36 free throws. And the Bears only shot 14 free throws for the game in comparison. And Matty O'Hare, who we know loves to get to the rack, shot 10 of those, finished with 8 of 10 at the line. It was, yeah, 13 fouls to 27. So, yeah, definitely the Sharks attacking the rim through Nicholson a lot more. That's a good segue into another point, and that is the play of Jolene Anderson in the first half. She shot six of seven from three. There was one, I don't want to say it's the same level of occasion as a national championship game, but there was one corner off balance three that was like Arike Agumbawale in the final, that off balance falling out of bounds three. And I think once that went in, the Sharks realized, okay, if we don't stop her, she is going to hit everything. And in the second half, sorry, in the third quarter, she only actually attempted one three in the entire third quarter. And that was when the Sharks came back and made their big run, 30 to 11 quarter, really dried up Jolene Anderson's scoring. She came back and attempted, I think, seven more in the fourth. But uh, by then, uh, North's advantage has completely evaporated. Looking to the fourth quarter and Sharks up. This is where this is actually where Nicholson missed three of six at the line in the last minute. Uh, fortunately, she hit two, four straight. So she took 10 free throws in the last 90 seconds and not all of them off fouls. Sharks did a good job getting the ball to her on the inbound. Um, there was one play where Liv White, who is a sub 50% free throw shooter, was open for the inbounds. And might have been Maddie Norris inbounding, just waited that extra second. Nicholson got open and Norris were forced to foul her instead. So whilst there were jitters at the line, certainly on the court, making sure the ball got in the right player's hands um, late in the piece to uh, secure the win. Very good work by the Sharks. I think it's just a big win in general for them. Sure, they might finish fifth or sixth, but just knowing, because if you think like they lost to, they had that big, big loss to Manly. Um, a big loss to Comets in the pre-Nicholson era. You know, they haven't had a lot of success against top four teams. So knowing they can get one over a top four team will be massive for Sutherland. I don't think Norse are going to harp on this loss because they came out the very next day and beat Centre of Excellence. So they certainly um, righted the wrong quite quickly. Jolene Anderson, those six or seven threes early in the piece, finished with 10 of 15. Uh, to finish with 32, 10, 5, and 1. And what I noticed about Norse, apart from everything else that you already noticed, is that they're great on defense. They've got players like Kate Seabom, Emily Simons, who just can run the show at any time, and Simons can just be plugged into wherever she needs to be. It's just the luxury of having someone like Jess Bygate to spell Sarah Schicker at the five spot. She's played in the WNBL. She's played in college. She's played for New Zealand. It's not really her position. You know, she's more of a, a forward than a center, but she has the size to play the position. And it's just such a luxury to be able to bring someone like that off the bench. I think it's going to serve them really well because we've mentioned what having strength in depth um, in the paint can do for teams in this league. I mean, it's, probably been a theme in the last few weeks yeah we're certainly uh as a league traditionally i know it's even particularly the crusaders as a club are so guard heavy and it can be any size of guard from one to three 
And a lot of the times people who would be a three are having to play a four. So it's hard to find a true centre. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, when you're a team like Norse that already have a great existing history and team chemistry to then be able to have two very strong centres, um, what a great luxury to have as a coach. 100%. But, yeah, Nicholson, um, that makes a lot of sense with the free throw line. So I know that her shooting percentage didn't look the best. Is it also reflective of how many shots she would have missed when she was being fouled? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so I don't think a lot, a lot of them weren't and ones. Some of them were in the bonus early in a couple of quarters, so that helped to get to the charity strike, but no one else was. You know, and Lauren Nicholson's going to get to the rack and try some tough shots. And against the Norse defense, um, even that, you know, turnaround um, from close range that she kind of likes to do that, I think my co-commentator said it would be a bailout shot if it was anyone else, but she's just that good at it. But against the Norse defense, that wasn't falling quite as often. And she was 0-4 from three-point range as well. But Sutherland was 6 of 21 because Sutherland will shoot 55% from three and then 28% the next week. And Norse shot 15 of 29 from three-point range, helped by um, Anderson's 10 of 15. And then Emily Simon's a perfect 4 of 4 from beyond the arc, which are... Definitely helped them. It was actually a 60-point final quarter, 32-28 in the fourth. Helped, of course, by late-stage fouling and a last-second basket by Eliza Fabro. But I don't think that's going to have any effect on... It's the only time the two teams play, so it won't affect head-to-head split. I don't know that these teams will end up tied in the final standings. It's quite unusual for a team like North, who are so strong on the defensive end, to be the team that have racked up the most amount of fouls. Like you said, 27 to 13. Like that's quite a big skew. And they had the likes of O'Hare, Pittman, like fouled off. Um, yeah, that happened That happened reasonably late. Um, they actually subbed Pittman. So O'Hare got her fourth. They subbed Pittman on, got her fourth. O'Hare subbed out, subbed back in, got her fifth. And then Pittman subbed back in and got her fifth really late as well. So, yeah, it happened pretty late in the piece that they both fouled out. But I guess players of that calibre, having them for even a few seconds more can be a... You know, especially Maddie O'Hare was really, you know, the one getting getting to the rack. Um, not making shots, but um, troubling the defence, causing fouls. You know, all eight of her points were at the charity stripe. Because it really limited their court time too. You know, Carla Pittman playing under 20, O'Hare playing under 20, and then bringing the likes of Caitlin Martin in to perhaps make up for those extra minutes as well, as well given the foul trouble. So she played 16 minutes, but then she was also in foul trouble on four. So um, yeah. lots of heavy rotations in that guard spot for Norse, which probably would have caused a little bit more of a headache to what was already a challenging game. Yeah, it would be nice to have that fouls drawn column on the uh, box score to know exactly how many fouls Lauren Nicholson actually drew. Yeah, it sounds like a very entertaining and exciting weekend down the Shark Tank. So, um, yeah, we love to see it in the league. Uh, always worth showcasing those games as well. But uh, there was another uh, absolute heart stopper of a game you covered in the women's competition, Lockie. Tell us about that. Well, it's a game that I would say more than a few people are talking about. It is, of course, the Sydney Comets minus Vanessa Panousas taking on the Maitland Mustangs, in which I believe, looking at her Insta story, Mila Voskovic's last game before she goes to college. Looked like that's what she was posting. Not, I won't read too much into it, but if it was, then she went out with a win. And 
It went to overtime and ended in mildly controversial circumstances. We'll get to that in the end. But I'm not sure Maitland took full advantage of Vanessa Panousa's uh, absence, but they did enough to get the win. Unsurprisingly, uh, saw a few players in foul trouble in this game. I think as you know, you look at the lineups, you probably expect the uh, battles between Maddie Washington, Sydney Hunter, uh, Drew Toliafoa, and Jada Crawshaw to be uh, pretty uh, physical. No quarter asked, none given from any of those players, and it turned out as much because uh, Crawshaw fouled out late in the fourth. Uh, Shakira Riley fouled out right at the end of overtime. Maddie Washington without a minute left in overtime. Still played big minutes, all of them. And except uh, Crawshaw only played 27, but uh, Maddie Washington still played, played 29. Shakira Riley almost played 40 of the 45 minutes. But that battle throughout, just really, really uh, fun to watch those players go at each other all night. But I think if I draw your attention to the points column of the box score. Shyla Hill, 36, which is an absolutely mammoth total alongside five rebounds and seven assists. But then next was Alexandra K. Ruse with 12 and Crawshaw with 11. And then we scroll down to Maitland, who really did it by committee. Four of their five starters had 15 points or more. So Riley finished with 15, Sid Hunter 16, Milo Waskovich 17, and Maddie Washington 18. So really doing it by committee. Neither team really, they weren't getting much scoring from the bench, but that's partly because the players who played the big minutes off the bench aren't your noted scorers. Hannah Fox played 25 minutes off the bench for Maitland. No one else played more than eight. She finished with six rebounds. That's her job, go out there and get boards. Uh, Alex Oliver was played 28 minutes off the bench. Her job Uh is to play defense and rebound, and she got three assists, uh, three steals, and four rebounds. Um, she can be good in the pick and roll. Um, noticed that a lot uh, when I've been commentating Comets games. Didn't get, uh, just got the one point on this occasion. Michaela Mitchell ended up playing eighteen minutes for just three points, but yeah, just four bench points to two. Speaking of bench, Hannah Griffin just can't seem to get minutes. I don't know. I can't comment on why because I don't actually get to see her play. And it's really interesting that even without Panousis, um, still not there, still not getting a call up off the bench. Yeah, I agree. I am not too sure what's going on in the Comets camp for Hannah Griffin not to get any time, like not even like even just to go on for two minutes a quarter, two to two and a half minutes a quarter, just to mm. give the likes of maybe Kayrou's a spell, Anderson a bit of a spell, whatever. Like just just to get 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 them some legs so they can uh, continue to perform at their best when it comes to the crunch because this game obviously did. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure why Hannah can't even get those couple of minutes. So it's really, I mean, we know that she's been putting in a lot of um, hard work in the last 12 months since she was uh, training a little bit with the Flames last season, and that's kind of what helped prompt her move to Sydney to further develop her game. So it's a bit disappointing to see that she's not provided the opportunity to translate that on court. But I was going to ask you about Madison Washington for Maitland. Uh, interesting that you mentioned that she fouled out late. Uh, was it in the fourth or in OT? She, I noticed that she only played uh, 29 minutes and she was having 18 and four 
was there more opportunity in that game for her to play more minutes to be just as efficient? It's tough when you uh, play with foul trouble in a, against opposition players that are um, can be that want to be physical as well. Like Crawshaw wants to go at you, especially on offense. Final foul came just at the end of the fourth quarter, so a minute to play in the fourth quarter. I guess that's where you get Hannah Fox there and they're coming in to grab rebounds. It's like they they do have a decent a decent option to spell spell players if necessary to help get some rebounding. Yeah, it would have been nice to have seen her a bit more, but I it would be harsh to uh to argue argue the toss with the coach's decision on this occasion. I guess what everyone wants to talk about is overtime. Big moments uh in overtime. Shiloh Hill knocked down a three early, Maitland came back. Comets actually didn't score for the final 149 of oh, 1 minute 49 seconds of overtime. Whilst Maitland missed four consecutive free throws in the final minute. Shyla got called for, I think it was a hook, got called for an offensive foul going from the left corner, driving in. I think the ball went, I think it went down. I think it would have been a basket. But yeah, she was called for the offensive foul. Shaq went up straight up the other end, got called for an offensive foul of her own and fouled out in the process. And then final possession, Rachel Williams puts up a layup, misses, Sid Hunter tips it in. And Squin, have you seen the photo? I have seen the photo. Now, I thought that was actually a Shakira Riley layup. So when I reported about this game on the NBL One show today, I have made a big boo-boo. So I thought that was Shaq going up for the last shot, but it was Rachel Williams. So apologies to both of them for getting that wrong. Um, But I did see the photo of the tip-in in terms of the clock in relation to when Sydney Hunter tipped the ball. And it is reminiscent of a a game that happened in NBL One North earlier this season with the Spartans and uh, how it was literally a photo finish with the clock in the background. So, look, this is why we don't take those positions where we make those decisions, uh, Lockie, <laughs> because uh, I wouldn't want to be uh, caught up in this controversy. No, and look, the, the photo, it looks like the ball's still in Hunter's hand and the clock is zero. Um but I do feel like in just about every instance I've seen a shot clock violation, a buzzer beater, anything like this, the referees always seem to err on the side of the shooter. I feel like if it's close, it feels like it goes the shooter's way. And I don't think... I mean, it's, it's going to be a problem because we're now playing in a league that has high-quality streaming where you can get screen captures like that but we still don't have video review. And there's probably 20 things on the league's priority list above getting video review, and rightfully so. Video review is probably a fairly expensive, you know, for the cost of what it probably would be. So, yes, I think the Comets have every right to feel hard done by, but I also think that if it was up the other end, they would have got the same call if they were the ones putting it in in that last second. I think what it really stands out to me, you mentioned an upgrade uh, for the league to have access to instant replay like we see in the NBL. Um, but what I think that can, uh, one big change that can happen across all of the NBL one clubs in East especially is an upgrade in the scoreboard equipment because I feel like this has happened here in Comets. It's probably ha- it's certainly happened at North, in NBL one North. 
But I feel like it's also happened when I've uh, commentated some Crusaders games where there were times where the siren for the game clock wasn't loud enough for the referees to hear it over the crowd and over the general uh, atmosphere of game day. And I think there needs to be a better investment in that first because then that will very much make the referee's job a lot easier. Especially in a situation like that where the crowd is going off. I mean, at Sutherland in the men's game, there was a call for a timeout. The siren went off. And I think they dribbled the ball. They were three quarters of the way up court. They were almost in their half court set before the people finally heard the referee's whistle for about the sixth time and play actually stopped and we realised there actually was a timeout because people just couldn't hear the siren. I know that that's all expensive in terms of the installation and the maintenance, but I think they're really important upgrades that should be a standard across the whole league. If we want to truly make NBL 1 the true semi-professional league, we have to be able to provide a level of professionalism that goes as far as the type of equipment we're using. Um, But the other thing with instant replay is that it means that obviously the cost and the installation of putting that in as well. And then we get to train more staff of how to use it. But I think that's also a good pathway of being able to retain people in the basketball community. So if there's people that are really interested in that kind of producing and um, audiovisual stuff, that's a great pathway to them in the same way that NBL1 has provided a pathway for aspiring commentators. So it's another way just to keep people in the game, I think. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, down at Sutherland, you know, we have a we have a four camera setup, so we have two manned cameras, and you know, we've got kids, um, well, not kids, you know, year twelve students going into uni or just at uni, and they, you know, they're getting experience. Um, one of our camera people just doing uni open days because they want to go into audiovisual production, and they've now got two years under their belt helping work a four camera system. Because otherwise that could be really hard to get that experience as well anywhere else. So if we can provide that through through sport, I mean, why not? But it did finish 76-75 in Maitland's favour. So that sees Maitland move to 9-6 and six and looking far healthier for a final spot, but they're not there yet by any stretch. Whilst Comets drop below North to 11-3 and three after North win on the Sunday, but they do have a game in hand and those two games against COE and Aubrey Wodonga to reschedule, which I will keep bringing up until the games happen. Fair enough too, because there's a lot of pressure on those games and the Maitland women have the Crusaders at home next round, which could also be another 50-50 type game, uh, given how well the Crusaders women have performed the last two rounds. So uh, their finals hopes for the Mustangs are certainly still alive, but I think it's up to them to keep it ignited. Yeah, they, they cannot afford to drop any, yeah. They don't want to get stuck having to win every game that's a toss-up. <laughs> Correct. Uh, so moving right along, I watched two of the men's games. Uh The first game that I watched was the Canberra Gunners and the Illawarra Hawks, which was, I think, technically the game of the week. But I'm going to be honest with you, I'm really struggling to keep up with what the actual game of the week is in the East anymore. So I just turn up on the round and figure it out. But um, the reason why I chose this game was pretty much based on some of the conversation we had in our last episode about the finals forecast where Canberra, we've said, have a bit of a slower start to the season, but are certainly still in the mix for making the top eight, whereas Illawarra was the team that I picked 
in our very first episode to take it all, uh, who are actually sitting quite low on the ladder now, I think, at, at 10th. So this was the game. It was really interesting. I was hoping that this would be a game where Illawarra would start to turn it around and, and get a win over Canberra, but it went all Cam- it went in Canberra's favour. They won 91-78, to outscoring the Hawks in the fourth quarter 23-16, to so just getting that pinch. And this was a fairly entertaining game. Pretty much wrote a list of pros and cons for each team for this game. So what I really liked about the Gunners is that they have a lot of hustle. They hustled nearly every play, every possession at both ends of the court. Uh, Their half-court man-to-man defense was really impressive and I think they certainly made life quite difficult for the likes of Tim Conrad and William Hickey because not a lot of things on the offensive end came easy for the Illawarra Hawks with Tim Conrad only having seven shots for the whole game. Uh, Hickey had himself 17 shots and he shot eight from 17, so he ended up with 24 points, but he uh, didn't have his best day at the free throw line with only seven uh, seven from 12. But what I also like about the Gunners is that their half-court offense looks a lot more organized and better executed compared to what we saw at the start of the season. So Tui and Morrison have a really great chemistry, and there were a couple of occasions, especially in the first half, where their two-man game was just outstanding. But for me, I think what the real big turning point on offense for the Canberra Gunners was Cameron Pender. Uh, Cameron Pender has been playing a lot more minutes and stepping up into the starting lineup. This game, he played 35 minutes and ended with 22 points, nine rebounds, five assists, and shot eight from 13. And what was really smart by Cam Pender is that he exploited the very... I'm going to say limited defensive transition of the Illawarra Hawks this game. He just ran layups. He had so many layups. And you know what? Illawarra Hawks let in too many of those transition layups the whole game, and they didn't adjust or improve their defensive transition at all, uh, which I found a little bit disappointing given their personnel. So Pender, he was he was basically going to the well to the well ran dry, and if he wasn't making layups, he got to the free throw line nine times and made six from nine. Uh, So he was really, really impressive. Just kept his game super simple, super smart. And I think he was the X factor for Canberra on this occasion. Everything in the half court, though, goes via Morrison. So if Morrison's not having his best game, then uh, you would think Canberra would kind of struggle. But in this situation, Morrison probably was a bit shaky at the start. He was missing quite a few of his bunnies that he'd normally make. He wised up to it quite quickly and started to focus more on being a facilitator and a screener. And then he was able to get a little bit more open on some pick and roll with uh, James Tui. But I think the the downside for the Gunners, I think they could have won by a lot more, but they missed so many layups. Whether it was open court layups, whether it was in their half court offense, there were times where even the likes of uh, Badalassi was missing some layups. He was one from six. And they were all on target. Uh, they just kept rimming out. I don't know if it was a bit of tension, uh, the intensity in the atmosphere of the crowd, but... It was their layup, so I expect Coach Herrick to go back and have the Gunners be practicing their layups under pressure because they could have easily won by a lot more. But looking at the Illawarra Hawks, you know, not all bad news uh, other than their D-trans didn't improve the whole game. I feel like uh, their defense as a whole can turn up the intensity a lot more. Um, The times where they put a lot more pressure on the ball and a lot more pressure in the passing lanes in the half court in particular they were making the Canberra Gunners panic and were starting to cough up a few turnovers. 
but uh, they, it was a little bit too late, yeah, way too late in the piece uh, for the Illawarra Hawks to turn that up. They only did it in the last few minutes of the game and I felt like if they'd come out in the fourth quarter with that level of defensive intensity, the game could have had a much different result. But they certainly miss a true inside presence that can handle like the skill and the muscle of Glenn Morrison. So there were definitely times where Tim Conrad had to guard Morrison in the post. No discredit to Tim Conrad at all, but I mean, he's he's playing out of position and that is Morrison's bread and butter. So Tim Conrad had quite a, a task ahead of him. And Noel Pogotto, to be fair, he's a fantastic player. He ended the game with 18 and 10. But in terms of his skill set and his size, he, he's probably not a fair matchup for Morrison either. He's probably more of a stretch four than he is a five. But I have to say, this kid has got such nice touch under the basket. He was always in the right spot at the right time for the likes of Hickey and Freddie Webb as well for some really nice dishes. Freddie Webb ended up with six assists. That's because the likes of Pagotto and... Um, Harry Morris, they're just in the right spot at the right time for these guys. And so Pagotto's touch, really, really good, especially in the second half. The Hawks ended up having 10 points from turnovers. Uh, I wonder if the if the stat men on their coaching staff were wised up to that during the game because I feel like that was something that they could have exploited. Like I said earlier, if they had upped their defensive intensity in terms of ball pressure and lane pressure, that point, 10 points of turnovers could have been a lot more. But yeah, really interesting game. Certainly came down to the wire. Full credit to Gunners for holding it together when it came down to the crunch. And I think it was the shot doctor, James Tui, who he had two, he had four from five from the three-point line this game. His fourth one was at a really crucial point in the fourth where it was still kind of going anyone's way. But by the time uh, James Tui hit this open three, you could just tell Canberra was going to win it, even though there was still a minute and a half to go. Look, not a bad game. Uh, Lots of things for the Hawks to go back and work on. Um, What was really interesting, and take this as you will, the times when the ball wasn't always in Hickey's hands, the Illawarra Hawks offense looked really, really good. Half-court execution was much better. There was much more flow. People were able to play their roles, whereas the times when the ball was in Hickey's hands too long, it meant that everyone was stopping and waiting to see what he was going to do and play off that. So I think it meant there was too much dysfunction in the half court depending on how much ball time Hickey wanted. Really interesting game. Um, I'm glad that I picked that one. Uh, Lots of young uh, talents like Cameron Pender and and Noah Pagotto, uh, really enjoyable to watch and really keen to see where their careers go. But, uh, yeah, that was essentially the Gunners and Hawks game. It's funny you talk about um, the ball being out of Dave O'Hickey's hands because it wasn't very long ago we were talking about how many assists Freddie Webb was racking up for Illawarra and whether putting the ball in his hands to run the offense might be a better idea for them. Yeah, totally. He, um, he, he reads to me as a point guard who definitely has the ability to score, but he, he seems like a more traditional point guard where he's focused on running the plays, running the troops, getting the ball to the right spot uh, versus, you know, how many shots can I take or when is it my turn to shoot? Yeah, I just thought that was really, really interesting, quite apparent in in this game. Uh, But, yeah, so that was that game. And the second game I watched was actually also the Comets-Mustangs game. And I picked this game uh, for a similar reason as why I picked the Canberra and Hawks game, being that this was a must-win for both teams. And if I remember correctly, Lockie, you probably have a better memory than me. 
But in our finals forecast episode, I feel like I had the balls enough. Well, I won't say the balls, but I had the guts enough to say that whoever wins this game between Comets and Mustangs will end up like on an upward trajectory. And I felt like that if Comets lost this game, like that was it for them for the season. They won't be coming back. I do remember you saying something like that and just looking at the table and the distance between Comets and Hills now, you may have made a uh, fairly prescient argument. This game as a whole, compared to the... Because I watched the Gunners-Hawks game and the Comets-Mustangs game back-to-back. And for the sake of entertainment value, I wish I watched it in the other way around because the Comets-Mustangs game, I'm not too sure if it was the influence of the commentary, but it just read as a game that was played in a lower gear compared to the Gunners-Hawks game. It lacked the same kind of intensity and sense of urgency that I got from the Gunners-Hawks game. Comets' roster is huge. You know, they had in their starting five, they had Maddie Waitcher, Wani Swakala Bullock, Indiana Faithful, Archer Woodhill and Johnny Sinagorak. Like, that is a potent starting five. With the likes of Johnny Sinagorak, he's only getting, he's, what, seven foot. He's getting five shots a game. Sorry, but that's, too little. Woodhill, he only had four shots a game, but my word, someone had a vex out on Woodhill this game. The poor guy, he came out and had three fouls in the first quarter. And then he started the second quarter, picked up his fourth. So he had to come back in only late in the game and then very soon picked up his fifth. So like, I don't know, the universe was not on Archie's side this game. So the poor guy only played 11 minutes. What was really interesting, Wani Swaka ended up with 17, six and two. Uh, but apparently, according to the commentary team, was overheard by the coaching staff that he needs to stop hogging the ball. Uh, so from that point on, Wani wasn't firing the trigger as often as he probably would have liked. Uh, but this game started with a huge Wani Swaka three-pointer, and I thought, like, this was massive. This was a car park three, and I thought that was going to set the tone for the game. High intensity, big shots, but it, it didn't kind of live up to that that kind of excitement. Uh, the Comets are continuing with their very quick subs. It was really hard to tell what offense they were running or if they were planning to run a particular half-court offense at all. So I'm not too sure if their coaching staff just have enough faith in their personnel based on experience and IQ of just to run a really solid motion. It did look like they were out of sync a lot of time and it looks like there were often uh, periods of play where it was just a one-pass shot or a one pass penetration and that was their entire offense. So I don't know I don't know what they're running in the half. It's really hard to say. It didn't look very organized at all and it was certainly to their detriment. But then on the other end it looked like they were playing very reactive, very passive D. So the Mustangs were able to kind of have their way with the the Comets kind of early on, but at the same time it looked like the Mustangs were holding back. Uh the Mustangs only won the first quarter 23 to 21 and then they lost the second quarter 23 to 20. It was a case that I think we've mentioned about this Mustangs team before, depending on how they want to play on the day and how they often fall into the trap of playing to the level of their opposition rather than going out and playing to their standard and executing their own game plan. Yet neither team really being assertive or taking control in the first half at all. Uh, The Comets did up the ante a little bit, especially in the second half, thanks to the likes of Indiana Faithful. They started to get some really good penetration and dishing happening, and that really kept them uh, in touch of Maitland. 
So Indiana was was the main playmaker. He ended up with five assists. And the comments saw the return of Thomas James, who's been out with injury. He only had nine points, but I feel like the times when he scored, he was in the right spot, right receiver spot at the right time, and that came at a really pinnacle point of the game. For, talking about Maitland, uh, you know, it was a very, like I said before, a bit of a passive kind of, it wasn't the high-intensity game I was expecting, but thankfully the Mustangs have Jack Edwards back. And the note that I wrote here was big bench energy from Jack Edwards because he certainly brought up the intensity of the game at both ends of the court, which forced everyone else to have to catch up with him. Interestingly, Gray and Hunter were off at the same time. Uh, I thought that was a bit odd. Um, James Hunter not having his best game. Uh, He had three from 13. But even then, I feel like he could probably have a few more touches on the inside, not necessarily to to score, but to help um, suck in the defense and get it out to some shooters. The Mustangs threw in... Uh, a couple of presses on any baseline or backcourt inbounds. But at times then their guarding the dribble penetration fell by the wayside. But in their favor, they had a lot of offensive rebounds, uh, which I think kind of gave them the most possession for the game comparatively to the Comets. So you always got a sense that Maitland were going to win in the end just based on how much they dominated that possession. They ended up winning the rebound count 49 to 38. So that, that was quite a lot. I think the Maitland Mustangs in the fourth quarter just decided to put this game to bed and won the fourth quarter 23-8, to eight, and uh, it was lights out from there. So quite kind of a weird game. Like I said, not as, as high intensity as I was expecting, especially for a, a must-win for both teams. Uh, Maitland now six on the ladder, and Comets now at 11th. Both teams have so much more potential to be performing a lot better. In summary, Sydney need to get organised on the offensive end and Maitland need to start playing their own game and not those of their opposition. That's actually, I was just looking at the minutes played and like Will Cranston Leon, 24 minutes played, that's massively low for him. Were there times when Maitland was sort of shuffling their subs to react to Comets doing the same? Yeah, you know what? That's a really great question, actually. I didn't notice anything that clearly as that, but perhaps that was in the back of their mind. But the subbing was just really interesting. Like, you know, having Hunter and Gray off at the same time, that's not something I would expect. I would always expect at least one of them to be on. But then also having Will Cranston Lown and Jack Edwards on at the same time, uh, that was a really interesting dynamic because they're both very good point guards, but they both play very differently. And I'm not too sure if either of them know how to play the two-man role very well. So when one was taking the point guard role, the other was very quiet when they had to play two-man. So I think um, some balance between them or maybe just some kind of uh, confirmation of what roles are, what I've expected of them when they do play the two spot. Because, yeah, it was a really weird dynamic. It was sometimes where Cranston Lowne will have the ball in his hands playing the point and you'd forget Jack was on the court until he caught it. Maybe they used that game. Maybe they were just confident they were going to win that game and were using that game to test out uh, some rotations that they might need to go to in later in the season. But um, you know what? who I really like from this team is Billy Parson. He's been outstanding in Youth League men for the last couple of seasons. He, he won uh, Player of the Year, didn't he? He did. That's you- right. He did win Player of the Year. So, yeah, he's, he's great. He played 18 minutes off the bench. He ended up with 16, 7 and 4, uh, shooting 6 from 9 which is solid minutes from an emerging talent and a youth league player. 
But again, really great touch under the basket, finishing some really tough shots. Yeah, Billy Parsons was really good. Similarly, as Cameron Pender was the X factor for Gunners, I think Maitland, I think Billy Parsons was an X factor for Maitland's game. So another really exciting young talent to see. But yeah, that more or less wraps up the game reviews for me. Um, I think it's that favorite time of the episode for the All-Star 5, Lockie. But before we get into that, do you have any news or gossip about the NBL 1 East? Well, it's tangentially related to NBL 1 East because it's an NBL 1 East player. But uh, St. Mary's Women's Basketball posting that Emily Foy has officially signed with them, continuing the long list of Australians to play in NBL in uh, for St. Mary's. A couple of current NBL 1 East players have played for St. Mary's, Jazz Forkadea, uh, Lauren Nicholson, of course. Um, and, yeah, just that um, Mila Washkovich looks like she's posted on Insta that she's off to the States. So, yeah, not too much news from me this week. Just a couple of things. And you know who else played for St. Mary's? Lucas Waxy Walker. Ah, Lucas Waxy Walker and for the Illawarra Hawks. He sure yes. did. And if I, if I dig any deeper, we'll be here all night. So, But for me, you know, from the day of recording, today's Monday the 19th. It is one week until the Asia Cup. I'm pretty confident you'll see the likes of Shyla Hill and Loz Nicholson uh, suiting up for the Opals. If you can, uh, jump online, get some tickets through Ticketek. The semi-final will be Saturday the 29th and the grand final will be Sunday the 1st of July. It's all going to be held at the Key Centre uh, and you'll also be able to see some local WNBL talent for New Zealand as well, the likes of Penina Davidson. So it's certainly worthwhile getting down there. But yes, plenty of... Yes, Colfern's named squad. Yes, Talia is in the squad. Uh, yes, Penina Davidson, Stella Beck, uh, that's another St. Mary's player, um, Charlize Ledger-Walker, and of course Townsville Fire's Crystal Ledger-Walker. So yeah, a bit of WNBL talent there. How could I forget Crystal Ledger-Walker? She's fantastic. Yeah, mm. she's definitely worth seeing playing in the flesh. In terms of news and gossip, uh, there are some injury updates for the Norse men's team, which you will hear very soon without when we interviewed Angus Burke, which is going to be featured after this wrap-up. Um, so sucked in, you'll have to keep listening to hear that. I say that with love. But uh, we're expecting Jada Crawshaw also to go to college soon, hopefully, we think. But actually, there's one more bit of news. That is Taryn Marnie from the Hills Hornets. It looks like she has signed with the Southwest Pirates in the NBL One North competition for the rest of the season. Uh, thanks to the power of social media for breaking that news. So we do wish Taryn the best of luck. But uh, otherwise, I don't think there is any other news and gossip that that we know of. No. Well, I think we're getting to the stage of the season where everybody's locked in and hopefully everything's settling down and we can just have the run into finals. So without further ado, uh, give me your all-star five for the women's competition for round 13, Lockie. All right. Well, it was definitely tough. Um, all by one player scored at least 29. I even had to leave out. Kate Kingham's 30-point game um, just because one of her teammates put up other numbers in other categories. Uh, it was also great to see Bianca Dufelmeyer drop 26 for the Canberra Nationals. She was also unlucky to miss out, as were a number of other players. But we'll start with a couple of players, or a few players I've already mentioned tonight. 
Uh, first up, Jolene Anderson had 32 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists, hit 10 of 15 from deep against Sutherland and a narrow 93-86 loss, but she definitely gave them a very good shot at the win. She followed that up with 17 points, 4 rebounds, 6 assists and 4 steals in the 92-87 win over COE. And then Shyla Heal did everything for Comets but get the W in a 36.5 rebound, 7 assist outing for the Comets in that narrow loss to the Mustangs. And then Lauren Nicholson, I think Jeremy Jones said the plan for the second half was a whole lot of Lauren Nicholson when the Sharks were trailing, and it came to pass as she finished with 35 points, nine rebounds, seven assists, four steals, and a block as the Sharks got a crucial win. The Newcastle player I mentioned earlier is Emily Foy. So not only is she going off to college, she's getting a mention in the All-Star 5. 24 points, 11 rebounds, six assists, and three steals in a big 123-47 win over Hornsby-Karingai. And then... Finally, in what is totally not a bias selection, although people will argue it is because of who it is, Michaela Pivik, 29 points, 12 rebounds, 7 assists, and a steal, helping Albury Wodonga get that narrow win with a fourth quarter comeback, 83-79. Yeah, she really put a team on the back to make sure that she uh, they got the win against the Crusaders in what was a very looked like a very good contest. So who did, who did you have, Squin? Yeah, so the men was equally as difficult to choose this week. A lot of big numbers again. Um, And to be honest, I didn't go by positions and I probably could have gone by win-loss, but I chose not to. Uh, So (laughs) at the top, though, we've got Lachlan Cummings from Aubrey Wodonga Bandits and also a crucial win against the Central Coast Crusaders. Uh, He had 36 points, four rebounds and six assists. Uh, he was strongly supported by uh, Jameer Coleman as well. And to be fair, Jameer was also in contention for the All-Star 5 with these numbers. Uh, he also ended the game with uh, 28 points and 16 rebounds, a really solid double-double, and he shot at 63%. So um, really unfortunate that someone with such a great stat line didn't make the... Um, didn't make the All-Star 5 this week. Uh, then we've got Blake Morrow from um, Inner West. He had 33 points, three rebounds, six assists and four steals in 28 minutes against the Penrith Panthers. And then his partner in crime, CB, Chris Bryant, had 30 points and nine rebounds. So the two Inner West Bulls taking two spots in the All-Star 5 this week. Then I had Sean Montague versus the Bankstown Bruins. He had 25 points and nine rebounds. And then I topped it off with AJ Lawton for the Central Coast Crusaders in that same game against Aubrey Wodonga. He had 28 points, three rebounds, six assists, and four steals in uh, 31 minutes, 31 and a half minutes, say. But he still shot really well as well. He shot 11 from 20. Uh, including five from 11 from the three-point line. So in the couple of years that AJ hasn't um, been a crusader, his three-point game has certainly improved. So we love having him back. I think he had the same amount of assists in both games for crew. Yeah, he probably did actually. Um, Yeah. Taking some pressure off Luke Cassidy, who's also known for his uh, high level of assists at times and also high level of steals. So RIP anyone that gets guarded by them. 
But yeah, that rounds out uh, our review of round 13 for NBL 1 East 2023 and our All-Star 5. We now have a very special interview with Angus Burke, who is currently the head coach of the Norse men's team. He's able to give us some very interesting insights into some of the iconic coaches that he has been assisting in the last couple of years as well. So stay tuned and enjoy that. Otherwise, we'll be back for round 14. And our very special guest after an entertaining round 13 of NBL One East is a very accomplished coach, uh, de- certainly a lot of experience beyond his years and a lot of basketball IQ beyond his years. He's someone that you've probably seen at a junior and a senior level for Norse Bears. And uh, if you haven't seen him there, you may have seen him representing New South Wales Illawarra Hawks at an NBL level or even the UC Caps as a, at the WNBL level. So surely that's enough clues for you now to know that our very special guest is Angus Burke. Hi, Angus. How are you? Squin, Lockie, what's going on? I've been such a massive fan for so long. Um, it's awesome to see you guys and, yeah, pumped to be here. Talk some hoop. Uh, that's really nice of you to say. Thank you kindly. Uh, we're glad that people are enjoying our ramblings every week of MBL One East because you know what? If me and Lockie aren't doing it, then who else will? Not me. So, yeah, you guys are killing it. <laughs> killing it. What we're going to do today, Angus, we're going to go through the pinnacle parts of your career and then we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty about the Norse Bears this season because you are the head coach of the men's team. And we are getting into crunch time of the seasons. But let's wind it back to the very beginning and tell us a little bit about how your coaching journey began and why it was that you chose coaching. Really flattering to say it's a career. I'm just happy to be here, to be honest. I'm still coaching at my local club, but honestly, I thought I was going to be a basketball player, um, as some of us would do. And actually, my school coach was Sean Roger, so he is the current assistant coach at Illawarra um, and coaches the youth league team. He basically sat me down and said, mate, it's probably not for you, but... uh, you know, I would love to have you around. So at the time, he was uh, assisting Robbie McKinley at Norths and basically said, hey, man, next year I'm going to be the head coach. Do you want to come and assist? And I was like, all right, well, if I can't play, give coaching a crack. And basically got really, really lucky. Like I just spent a lot of time my first year out of school at Norths, at BNSW, just kind of getting as much info as I could. And then, yeah, I've just kind of been in the right place, right time. Met Jacob pretty soon after I got into coaching. Uh, worked with him at Knox, then the Hawks, um, and then all the guys at Norse. Like Tom just came out of nowhere from Norse. He's probably been the guy I've worked with the longest. Um, so, yeah, really, really lucky, but good people around me. I'm just happy to still be doing it, to be honest. And uh, you say you've worked with Tom for the longest. When we met, you were one of Tom's assistants for an under-20 women's state squad. Yes. We um, also just – off topic, Squin makes a hell of a breakfast spread. So the first time I met Squin, we were at Central Coast for 20s camp. Yep, with Tom. Squin kindly put us up in some accommodation and killed it with the brekkie spread. But no, I've known Tom uh, probably like seven years now, seven, eight years. Um, his two assistants in that first year with Waratah just didn't hang around. And so... I was a keen guy that just wanted something to do. And he was like, all right, sweet, jump on. And then I kind of assisted him for the next five years, really. So he was kind of the guy that set me off onto state teams, seniors. Um, but yeah, I've known him a fairly long time, for me at least. 
you've been part of your twenties, you've been part of NBL with the Caps at WNBL level. What what are some of the differences between coaching at say junior rep level and then stepping it up to U twenty nationals? So it probably uh, in terms of reflection, the basketball is always going to be the same at every level you go to. And I think with the juniors, which I was doing a lot of under 12s, under 14s, and then straight into 20s and seniors, there's always things to work on. So even though you go to a 20s and it's like the best players in the state, there's always something that maybe you can exploit. All right, they don't have a left hand. They don't can't shoot very well. You can always look to get better at things. So, and even at the level that we're at now, it's like, all right, guys still can't use their left hand all right, guys still refuse to shoot the ball. So um, from that perspective and a coaching perspective, it's like, all right, well, we still need to work on fundamentals. We still need to work on decision-making because it's present in every level. So for me, it was cool. Like it was pretty similar, just better players, um, better coaches at tournaments. Like I thought I was pretty cool in under 12s, like, you know, running sets, yelling at kids. I mean, not like as I do now, but – yeah, really, really similar in terms of style of play, but um, just better talent, better coaching. Give us some insight into your role at the Hawks. So you mentioned just there between coaching from whatever level that, that the game relatively stays the same, but there's always something you can improve on. But what is it like coaching at an NBL level? And give us some insight into what it's like working under someone as legendary as Brian Gorgian. He, um, as well as Jacob, are just incredible at what they do. So whether it's Gorge and everyone knows him about the people person, he's a great um, leader of men. He's also on top of the basketball stuff. Everyone that sees Jacob that's animated, he's a be- he knows his stuff better than anyone does. So for me, it was, all right, I think I know a little bit. I actually don't know 1% compared to some of these guys. And I'm sure those guys will say the same. Like we're constantly, constantly learning. The thing with Gorge is the ability to to win. I've never seen anything like it. So we were down. I think we start the game at home, massive game. I think we're playing Southeast. We start the game 15-0. And I'm on the laptop. I'm just coding the game. Oh, my God. I look at Gorge, no timeout. I'm just like, what the frick are you doing? We get it back. We go on a 15-0 run. We win the game in overtime. It was just ridiculous. So I had to ask him the week after. I get pretty nervous asking. Well, I used to get pretty nervous asking questions. I was like, man, why didn't you call a timeout? And he goes, well, what would that have done? Would it have helped the winning? No, probably not. All right, then we don't do it. So the biggest thing from Gorge, and we talk about it in the NBA one team currently, it's like, well, is this going to help us win? Yes. All right, let's do it. If not, no. No worries. So... Him and Jacob, unbelievable winners. Um, the other thing about Gorge and probably speaks to him as a person, he remembers everything. So like you'll be sitting at practice, waiting for practice to start. He'll be rebounding. He'll make a comment, hey, hey, how you going? And then three weeks later, he'll bring up something that you thought was a passing comment and just have a conversation. So for me, that's something I'm trying to get better at. Um but he's an unbelievable people person and they're on top of their stuff always. That attention to detail, not only in his coaching, but also off court being a people person, as you say, uh, do you feel like that is a big part of his success as a coach, how he invests in people, the people behind the athletes? Yeah, I can't talk um, from like his previous experience, but just even with me, like he, he was talking about stuff that I spoke to him you know, about my family, about what was going on. He remembered every single detail. He speaks to everyone that comes into the stadium every morning before practice, interns, players, 
visitors. He's having conversation. And it actually, whether he does or doesn't, and I probably think he does care about everyone he speaks to, it really feels that way. So you come into the building and it's like, all right, Gorge cares about me. I'll do anything for that guy. So when anything was asked for us as an intern or whatever we would do, we'd want to do it for him because of the investment and the care that he had for us. So yeah, he's a hell of a competitor. He gets fired up like everyone does, but at the end of the day, he he cares more than, than anyone I've seen that I've worked with. So yeah, I try to emulate some of that. I, I can't get it like he does, but that's definitely one of the building blocks, at least for me. It's like the relationship and how you use that to perform. You, you talked, you mentioned that you were sitting sideline coding a game. I'm sure that was only one of your many duties when you were uh, part of the, uh, is it the intern program? I think it was called down there. What did you get experience with and what, what did you learn? It was awesome. And I know they've got applications out now. So anyone interested in, in going, they really should. So I first came in just by chance because I knew Jacob and Sean um, at the end of the lockout season. I don't know if you can call it that, the hub season. Um, and basically that first year I just sat and watched. Um, there was no official program. They got me to do a little bit of video. And then the next year when it became official, Pat Williamson, Declan McLean, they came in and they just kind of said, all right, here are your tasks. Um, if you have anything that's going to make us better, let's see it. So for a lot of it, for me, it was the game day coding, like you spoke about. All right, I have this thing for Jacob. I think it can help. Let me show you. Yep, sweet. Let's do it. So even though it was considered an intern, you never really felt that way. You were always in doing stuff at practice. You were valued at the games. I felt I had the best seat in the house. I got to review all the clips. Um, There was one time where Gorge got a tech for yelling at me and, and the referee thought it was for him. But that was hilarious. I thought that was like the best thing ever, um, even though they got to shoot a free throw. But yeah, it uh, it was so it was great for me. Um, the level of basketball, they gave us so much responsibility, probably more than we we deserved or needed. Um, especially guys that have never done it before. So yeah, the video was a massive part, helping out a practice. Um, and then yeah, if we were able to influence decisions or how they do things, that was just an added bonus. But I, I'm not here without that program. I'm not here without Gorge, Jacob, or Sean. So you take the knowledge, but you take the experience, and you also have those relationships moving forward, which has been awesome for me. Bit of an ignorant question here. What is game day coding, and what does it look like? So you'll probably see, if you watch any of the horse games, like I think last year it was uh, Cranny, Declan, and Pat all sat in the site with some computers. So what happens on the court gets done live so you can basically get a feed on your computer we chop it up so for example what i was doing is every possession can get its own little video Um, every pick and roll for example gets its own video every transition whatever you wanted to do Um, so if jacob really liked pick and roll transition um, what sets we ran and so at any time he could look over and go oi what happened on this last one or how are we scoring on this one so it's a really uh, advanced way, and I think a lot of NBL teams do it now, where you can get data. It's it's good to get quarter time reports or half time, but video becomes important. So that's what live coding is in a nutshell. It's just another resource um, for the coaching staff. Wow. So you're essentially creating in real time your own instant replay uh, from the current game that you can still go back and implement and change in that same current game. Yeah, so I think the big like the pick and roll. So they'd say, "All right, this is what's happening. The pick, they're doubling. Let's see the double pick and roll. Where's the advantage? So maybe it's a cutter coming out of the corner, short rolls, whatever it is. They want to see that. And then the other part of the coding is the review. 
which is the most stressful part of the coding because um, you literally have two seconds. So I think we were pretty good in that last year. There was one stressy moment, but for the most part, I think we had a routine down pat. But yeah, anything the coaches needed on game day or a practice, we'd, we'd have it ready for them. I mean, my first game I did for Gorge was, uh, let's say, a very nice lesson in uh, <laughs> saying yes or no to his responses instead of, uh, or I don't know. So, yeah. Wow. That's a grow up quite quick. So did Gorge get a tech uh, because someone on you for yelling at you for not reviewing a, a coach's decision quick enough? So, without giving away too much, basically I got really good at the saying yes and no. And there was one game where we just, I think we were getting hammered a little bit and he keeps looking at me. He has this look, he just, Yes or no? Are we reviewing? Are we reviewing? And four times in a row, I said no. I got really good at yes or no. So the fifth time I go, Gorge, no. The first time I've used his name, turns around, says some words to me, but the referee was right there, thought it was the referee. Got a tech. Gorge was saying, pleading with him. He's like, man, I was talking to my guy. I was talking to the... Straight after the game, he apologized. Oh, I shouldn't do that. And then I don't think he got a tech for the rest of the year, actually, after that. So... That was definitely one of the more intense moments on the coding, but you get into a routine. The yes and no got uh, stuck in my vocab for a while. But uh, I guess more recently, you were um, down in Canberra with the uh, Capitals. So how did how did that differ between what you did uh, with the Hawks? So probably the biggest difference um, is the resourcing. So like we had three interns, two assistant coaches, Gorge, performance, physio, Joe, who helped us out around the traps. And that was every day we'd have access to those guys of the Hawks. At the Caps, it was a full-time head coach, a full-time assistant coach, two in-and-out assistant coaches, and then a guy that would help us and be there day-to-day. So resourcing was probably the biggest thing, but the basketball was at such a high level. Like, there's no complaints. Like, the in terms of the basketball between the NBL and the WNBL, the talent is both there. The level of coaching is both there. Um, and it's amazing what the league and teams have done um, with that in mind. So for anyone that's followed our season, it was probably less than desirable. But as a coach, like we got so many things out of it, like stuff that I can immediately put into the team right now. Like we, I think we, someone put a number up. We had 13 different starting lineups in the WNBL. So like it's never happened. So then we come into the NBL one season, it's lessons learned. Or, you know, a player goes down, Jade goes down. We have to change how we play completely. So now it's like, well, I have the confidence that if we need to do something totally different, we can with enough understanding, with enough whatever it is. So the basketball's at a really high level. Uh, it's probably just the resourcing was the only difference. Did you find, like uh, like you mentioned, 13 different starting fives is unprecedented. But coming into this NBL one season, I can I know for a fact there's probably a couple of women's teams who have had to do the same. Uh, one being my beloved Central Coast Crusaders women's team who have had to have a lot of different starting five uh, lineup changes. But I guess um, because something in ba- basketball is the most unpredictable, highly variable sport there is, but it sounds like something like being able to adapt or learning to adapt to uh, having to change your starting lineups in the long run is going to be more beneficial for a team. 100%. And a coach, like you can't just, for me, I was a dribble drive guy or whatever, like for the longest time, I can't do that anymore because whether I don't have the personnel, I don't have who I want. Like, so you have to be able to change how you guard defensively using your personnel. Um, 
But the caps definitely showed me that anything's possible that way. I mean, we jigged a few wins and we played totally different. We surprised a bunch of people. We elevated players that maybe had played smaller roles. So and the thing that Gorge always used to say, I'm bringing him up again. He always used to say, I've seen crazier things. That was the stuff he spoke. So when we talk about the 15 and no run, or we talk about teams coming back, or whatever, I've seen crazier things. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's like, well, I've seen crazy things happen than a team with no players winning games. So yeah, adapting is really important, using your personnel um, and sticking with who you got. Because you went from, you know, being under Gorge, icon, being under another icon, Kristen Veal. But was there anything you were able to take directly from your time at the Hawks and make a positive change when you got to the Caps? Veely is an absolute weapon. Um, everyone thinks about the player and then obviously the CO either, but as a high-performance coach, she's one of the best. Um, the way she thinks about the game, the way she can implement what she wants, super high level. So for me, if I'm taking the two thing or one thing from each, it's Gorge was an unbelievable relationship person. So whether it's holding accountable, whether it's making people felt like they were a part of it, they were cared for, that's what I wanted to take most from Gorge. And then from Veely, it was like the attention to detail. How do you teach? What do you like? How do you implement it with your group? So both leaders in their field, both exceptional coaches. Um, I was just super lucky to kind of be a fly on the wall um, with those two. But yeah, lessons everywhere with those guys. And then the last thing I'll quickly ask as a side note before I let Lockie jump back in is, you know, you mentioned that UKC cap season uh, on paper wasn't the best season, but to be fair, very brand new group, new roster, completely rebuild phase. Uh, but for me, the biggest win of that season for that group was how much they were able to start to cultivate a brand new positive culture for the Caps, uh, which historically the Caps club is kind of known for. So can you give us any insight into what went into developing that good team culture? To be honest, I can't take any credit for that because it's all on the players. Um, If I know you guys came to a game towards the back end, it was funny. Usually when you lose games and the Hawks were – talking about that a little bit if it's not going their way the crowds tend to dip but then in Canberra something about that group whether it's the way they play the enjoyment the crowds actually went up every game we were getting sellouts at the back end of the season when games didn't really matter so I can't really give you the answer but I think if I was to give something close it's the people they were unbelievable people they never made excuses when players went down or schedule whatever or yellow uniforms no one ever made an excuse we just kept going um people appreciate that people can relate to that so if i had to guess it'd be that people see coaches on game day but for six days of the week they a lot of people outside you know outsiders don't really know what goes on in the life of a coach so give us some insight what are some things people don't know about coaching it's really really fun i'm sure everyone knows that probably like for me if you watch me coach it probably looks like i'm not having fun like i'm yelling a lot i'm a bit stressed that's just the way I communicate, um, and I'm just lucky that like these players have responded to it. Just the way I am, just the way I was built, Like the people I've had in my life, they're ultra competitors, and that's how I feel like it's going to get it done, uh, especially with a team right now where undermanned, I have to be the guy that maybe tells the truth a little bit too often or you know has a go when it needs to be. But yeah, the coaching lifestyle is great. Like I more full-time jobs would be awesome but uh the balance i've currently got is like can't complain 
Uh, we get to rock up. It's even two practices a week. They're the best practices. You know, we train freaking hard. Everyone gets into fights. Not all the time. Um, up and down. I'm sure you can guess which people are getting in the fights and, you know, getting upset at each other. But that's okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm listening to NBL one stuff all the time, doing video. I really can't complain. It's awesome. The players are great. It's gotten to a point now where everyone wants to hang out with each other. Um, I know the Bash Bros hung out till like two in the morning on Saturday night watching the game replay, so that's cute. Um, but yeah, I, sorry, who are the Bash Bros? Uh, they're affectionately known as the Bash Bros. It's Lewis Holy and Mike Golding. So okay, um, I know the reference, but I didn't know who it was in your team. I mean, they're great guys. I don't know why they're being called the Bash Bros, but yeah. So I have no complaints. I have had a really, really easy run with it. So they've they've been awesome. That you said you were um, animated, but I did notice after that one non-call on the shot clock violation, you just gave the little shrug. But it was a big win, and you did it without Brennan Reimer. Uh, just how crucial is that win in terms of you know staying in the hunt for top two and also keeping Sutherland off your back? Basically, the last four weeks, or whenever Junior went down, we've been underdogs. So they remind each other that all the time. Um, so for us... They're, they were hot on our tail. We were right there with them. Um, it was a massive win. Like I feel like we let them back in the game, but they're a really good team, super talented. So for us to get it done, and I'm not going to say role guys because they're just another teammates. Um, they're, they're just players. They're not role guys. They're players. Um, was awesome for us. So we just keep going. I know Lewis spoke about it during the week. Like The Norse Bears got the Norse Bears to this point. doesn't matter if... We lose a player, drop a player, whatever it is, the Norse Bears got us here. And so that's kind of what we're doing from this point forward. Yeah, and I mean, I almost had hand cramp writing DNP next to players in my notes on Saturday night. Like you said, the Norse Bears got the Norse Bears here and you keep winning despite dropping, you know, having players out. And what what do you do as coach to ensure that the team's level is maintained? Sorry to use another analogy, but you know how they talk about if you want to be a bodybuilder you gotta eat like a dog have you ever heard about have you you just gotta eat the same thing over and over again that's where i'm at right now like we just keep doing us so the practice format doesn't really change the way i coach doesn't really change obviously there's adjustments but we have to be consistent so i try to be consistent with who i am i try to be consistent with the athletes um and i think it's been working okay like they it got a bit crazy during the week because we couldn't throw it to brennan and make something happen so that was an adjustment for sure. But when we get into the game, we have five guys in the starting line that can defend the talk, that have a crack. So, yeah, we just got to stay consistent no matter who we have. Maybe yeah, just a point on that analogy, you could probably change it to uh, you got to eat like a bear because bears also eat pretty similar things <laughs> every day. Uh, and you are the Norse bears. So sure. well, right. Eat like a bear. That's a good. That's good. Put that, put that on the bulletin board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have what do we have on the bulletin board? We actually have a we actually have a picture of bears in a rowing boat as our uh, as our mantra. I'm sure you can ask someone else, but yeah, that's what we have in our change room. It's like four bears in an Olympic rowing boat. So just a little insight. All pulling towards the same goal, I guess. Maybe, maybe I mean, you have to ask someone else. But you mentioned earlier um, that you get two practices a week. How do you ensure that? Though, you know, because you don't have the quantity of practice time, that it's all quality practice time. We're really, really lucky with Norse backing us, uh, whether it's facilities, 
programs, you know, working people. So we train at Shaw, which is an unbelievable venue in Sydney. So we utilize their venue as much as we can. Like, I know they won't like me saying this. We use the TV for video, keep that in the DL. Um, you know, we practice. Guys come in early. It's a massive facility. Norse have kindly provided us with Fast Scout, which is like a scouting and review tool. Um, so we distribute that to players before practice. So by the time they get there, they're on top of it. We don't have to waste any practice time. Um, and probably the other thing that I've never done before, we've cut out team shooting. Now, any other coaches listening are probably like, what are you talking about? And the point I made, and Lewis was furious because he wants to get shots up, is like, well, if you want to do team shooting, something else has to take a hit. So we've decided as a group, if you want to get shots up, you do it in your own time. So that's how we maximize our two sessions. And we go like there's no come to a practice because we just go like people watch us at the end of the game. You watch the end of the solo game last two minutes. We're not tired because we run because we rebound. We don't stop until we think it's good enough. And that's driven by the players, not by me. So that's how we maximize it. They go and do their own things. We have a partnership with Ozzy Hoops and they provide all physio, all gym, all extra shots for us. So kind of up to the players if they want to maximize it and it feels like they have. So no complaints. Yeah, you mentioned encouraging players to get shots up over your own time and not spending as much in the team sessions. Is that something you implemented at the start of the season or did you implement it partway through and then and noticed uh, an improvement uh, come game day? I mean, we're still not shooting great. I don't know. I just felt like I needed to value defensive rotations. I needed to value how he rebounded the ball. So that's what was important to me. Um, and if it's important to them, they'll shoot in their own time. Like I know a lot of them shoot on game days now. So yeah, we've had it in from day one. We do the first 30 minutes of practice. Every practice is the same. There's no team shooting in there. So we're just being consistent. Uh, we play a lot, not a whole lot of team shooting, but that's just kind of our mindset uh, from the start. And if you can't shoot, then it's a good thing that you'll be able to play defense and rebound. So yeah, yeah I was like, man, I don't know how, cause you know, Junior averages 30 a game. Brennan averages 24. I don't know how we're going to get 55 points. But if you can defend, you have a chance. If you defend and you have a crack, you, you have a chance. And, yeah, we have guys that can do that. It's funny you mentioned that you don't, at the end of the game, you don't look tired because just in the fourth quarter, the last two minutes, just when both teams went back and forth, and I think there were three consecutive possessions, guys hit threes, two for you guys and one for Sutherland. Everyone just looks so fresh. But the difference was Sutherland were able to rotate 10 players all night. You guys yeah. were running seven, maybe eight for most well, of the that's time. What I remember one practice in the preseason because I was driving up from Canberra twice a week to do practice, like in the preseason. So I was never going to cancel a practice. Last year, for whatever reason, like players and I bet they cancelled practice. I think they cancelled like 15 practices. And I was just like, that's net. I... I don't know what I'm doing, but I definitely know I'm not going to cancel practice. So we would go three on three in the full court for two hours if we had to. So like that's just what they know, um, just going. Yeah, like Tassie was unbelievable. If we could have got other players in, we would have, but they look good. They were fresh. Lewis just told me to stop asking if they were okay because the answer is always going to be yes. So yeah, uh, we're just going to keep going. We'll see what happens. And you will have to keep going because you do have a pretty tricky run home and you've got two massive games against Inner West still to come. How, how do you approach the final part of the regular season, particularly with straight elimination finals? 
this is such a good comp um, this year. Like the locals are really impressive. The imports, especially in the West, I think they've just like hit the mark with their balance on their import. Like they've combined locals, their imports. Then you look at teams like Newcastle who just backed their local. It's it's awesome. But yes, very, very challenging for us. So like I said before, we're going to just try to do the same thing. The scouts will change how we play will change, but we're going to be consistent with us. Like the Bears got us here. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say it again, but yeah, inner West are really tough. Aubrey probably don't have the rep, but they have two legit, legit imports. Penrith are playing way better. Comets have loaded up. They got Indian one in it. Like we don't have it easy, but we wouldn't want it any other way. So like <laughs> if we, if we have to play hard games going into hopefully finals, we'll take it. I mean, Canberra starting this week, they're, they're hooping right now. Pete's, killing it they're all playing really really well shows why they were champions and yeah it starts this week and we're going to take it one game at a time don't let lewis know that i'm talking about two weeks away because he'll you know say something but yeah we're taking it one game at a time and yeah we'll see what happens it sounds like lewis holy is quite vocal in the players group and uh with voicing his feedback to coach burke he was the first person outside of the guys that played it he was the first person i recruited because I don't know. I think he's had 12 surgeries. So he's a young dude. He's like 27. He had 12 major surgeries. I heard he was back in Sydney. Um, and I knew him. I was the water boy of the Waratah team when I was probably 13 or 14 years old at North. And he would have been, yeah, 18. So that's when I met Lewis. Didn't see him for seven years. All I knew that he could rebound. So he was the first person I recruited. Yeah, the first practice he comes in, there's a fight between him and someone else. I was like, all right, great. Um, this is awesome. But the best thing about Lewis is that I have to be on top of my stuff all the time because he's very, whatever you say, I'm going to hold you to that. So for me, it's been awesome having someone like him around because like, well, a drill wasn't explained probably. All right, you made a mistake. What what are you going to do about it? All right, this play didn't work. You can see it in the scout. When we stuff up a scout, the first person that will look at me will be Lewis. Not because of anything else, but he goes, man, you told us this. We're doing what you told, or whatever it is. So he keeps me on point. He also keeps his teammates on point. He's he's an unbelievable recruit. I think at one point he was leading the country in rebounds, and he's like six four, something ridiculous. So yeah, I mean I love it. It's great. <laughs> it makes practices fun. And uh, it's his first time, I think, playing with this group because I think what's for both uh, North teams, men and women, I think to their advantage. Both groups have such a great playing history with each other and a winning culture with each other. Um, they both the both programs have been consistently successful for a long time. But Lewis Holy coming into this group and sounds like he's someone who likes to hold people accountable. And what was that like bringing him into an already existing dynamic? I had spent some time with the Waratah women, um, with Tom and a little bit with Renee. And the biggest thing was they had unbelievable people in their program. So you look at the winning, you look at the banners, but they were super consistent with how they treated people at the club, uh, how they treated each other. So for me, I can't emulate what Tom and Renee have done for that program, but I can try come close with the people we're recruiting. So the second part of me getting that job was I wanted to get Norse people back in the club. So made sure Robbie, Mikey, Mike Golding, um, Rob, uh, I said Robbie, Josh, when he was here, all these guys are back. And then it was about, all right, if we can't get Norse people, so I reached out to all these NBL guys, who are the people that are going to be good for the club? So you look at someone like Nate Musters, no way is he a Norse guy. He lives in Canterbury, but he is an unbelievable people person. 
um, has done unbelievable things for our club. And, you know, and Brennan Reimer, same thing. Everyone looks at him and go, oh, man, he's, you know, he's a bit erratic. He, you know, he ripped his jersey on the second, you know, whatever. We had to get him a new jersey because he ripped it. But he goes to under 12 rep games, sits on the bench and supports them. They all go to practice. Anatoly Bos, everyone was telling me he was going to be a headache. He's been the best one. Like, seriously. And and everyone was like, man, you got to get rid of him. People at Norse didn't want him. I was concerned at first. Like, I don't really know this guy. But then he's just passionate. And it's the same with me. So like, and Lewis, if you want to win and that's all you're about, we're never going to have any issues. Yeah, it gets heated at practice. Yeah, people hold each other accountable. I do the same thing. But at the end of the day, we all have a goal of winning. So there's never any issues that that have arised. Not yet. Not that I know of. Um, (laughs) Maybe there's some hiding in the background I'll have to deal with at some point. But so far, so good. All your coaching, you talked about how it's not quite a career yet. What, what do you do on the side? Are you involved in basketball when you're outside of coaching? And Most how... boring dude of all time, just quietly <laughs> before you finish your question. What does Angus Burke do Yeah, for a job when he's not, when he's not coaching? I said boring. You, if you've guessed accounting, you probably guess right. So I'm just, I'm an accountant. <laughs> um, so as soon as I go back from Canberra, I moved back into full-time work because... Got to pay the bills. But yeah, I do that. Still, obviously, the aspiration is to one day coach in the NBA, in the WNBA, in a national team. So that's always there. I mean, I'm dog sitting right now. That's pretty exciting. So he's cool. <laughs> Nothing really crazy. I love an almond croissant and a coffee and coaching basketball. That's that's probably where I'm at right now. <laughs> I, I love a dare iced coffee and commentating on basketball. So there you go. But you're even more interesting than me because you have an iced coffee. I just have black, long black. It's boring. Shout out to Sean Rodre. He's the armor croissant connoisseur. I did mean, for four years with Sean and you never taught me that. Hey, you, hey, you learn things later in life though, to be fair. <laughs> True. Uh, so you mentioned your aspirations uh, go as far as coaching in the NBA, WNBA, national teams. Uh, are you someone who likes to set, you know, a five-year goal type of thing of where you'd like to be? Or are you happy to ride the wave of opportunity as they come to you? So I think for me, long-term would be the best league in the world, which I think is the WNBA, NBA at some point and win at that level in, in a capacity. And then the national team thing, same. But that I don't have a date on that. I'm just trying to get better right now. So that's like back of mind. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to do the best I can for North. Like it's, it's all I got going now coaching wise. So putting all my time to that and seeing what happens and just staying ready for what's ever next and put my hand up to do stuff, hopefully go to some practices and yeah, I'm just loving basketball right now. Are you, are you allowed to give us any kind of hints about where you might be coaching after the NBL one season, e.g. another NBL or WNBL club? Hey, if anyone has any jobs, I'm right here. No, there's, not, there's nothing uh, official just yet, just asking around, seeing what's going on. But yeah, I, I think for me, it's like I spoke to Brett, the CEO at North. Like I have to do a good job in this league because now everyone's watching NBL One East. So if I can just make sure I'm dealing with my staff, I'm not getting texts, we're playing okay, the players think, you know, we're doing a good job, that's all I can do. I can't do anything else than that. Um, so yeah, just staying ready, loving the NBL One, loving North, and just trying to double down on that at the moment. If you're comfortable, Angus, to give us a quick rundown on injury updates for your Norse men's team Nash ACL Josh stress fracture Brennan ACL uh Tolly old and Junior's got my Sostis 
which is like a rare form of internal bleeding. So yeah, that's kind of where our roster's at. So yeah, we just keep going. We'll have the same team. Hopefully Junior and Tolly um, get cleared for this week, but we're preparing with whoever turns up at practice. Angus, uh, thank you very much for joining us for an episode of East Scott Game. Uh, your yeah, thank you for everything that you've provided today. Very insightful in your st- already stellar coaching career, and I'm sure you've got a lot more ahead of you. And hopefully, this episode gets to the right people, and people start contacting you for some coaching jobs for the upcoming NBL and WNBL season. I'm sure lots of doors will open, and uh, just remember us. When you get in that green and gold and you're on the Boomers or Opals coaching stuff, just oh remember God. us, okay? Down, seriously. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still just the North rep coach. That's, I'm happy to be that. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been awesome. Um, obviously, spoke to you guys previously. Like Everyone listens to this podcast because NBL East is booming right now. And so we don't get that. The coaches don't get it. The players don't get it without you. So keep going. Um, hopefully, this episode, you don't have to cut too much. But yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of East Got Game, an unofficial podcast covering the NBL One East competition for 2023. Join us again next week as we cover round 14 of the competition and we'll be back with another very special guest. See you then. And in the meantime, don't sleep on the East.